0: We are continuing to make our way through this matter of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and our submission to Him. We've sung about that this morning. Now we want to delve more deeply into the matter of what it really means to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We have been asking a series of questions, uh, prompting to us from the platform of 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you've been with us, we've been asking a series of questions about this matter of the Lordship of Christ and how we understand it and how we live in light of it. And the first question that we ask. In contemplating this concept of the Lordship of Christ, is well, what is faith? If I'm supposed to serve and be subject to the Lordship of Christ, uh, how do I develop a relationship with Him? And that, of course, is done by faith. And we've been asking that question and determining what faith is and how it operates and how it continues to be a part of our Christian life. And then we ask a second question. Uh, just on the heels of what is faith, and that is what is repentance. And we talked about that last time, and I told you that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Faith is belief in Jesus Christ. I'm putting my trust, my confidence, my hope, my entire life in His hands, what He did on the cross of Calvary, that He died, that He was buried, that He was raised again on the third day, and that He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And my faith, my confidence, my trust is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and those things alone for my salvation. And I also repent of my sin. That is, I turn from my sin... And I not only turn from my sin, but I turn in the opposite direction and I do something else. And that is, I turn from my sin in order to serve the living God. We saw that from First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Repentance is turning from idols, dead idols, or any passions or lusts or cravings of the heart. I turn from those things and i go in the opposite direction entirely and that is to serving the lord those are actions of faith and repentance now if someone were to say to me well you spoke about repenting from sin but that lance engenders another question and that is what is sin well i'm so glad you ask what is sin that's the third of our five questions. What is sin? And that will occupy us this morning as we not only hear and listen to the Word of God, but as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, the very thing that we ought to be thinking about and meditating upon, and that is how Jesus died for my sin. Well, what is it? What is Sin. Well, I read to you from First John chapter three. Go back there, First John chapter three. I read that for our scripture reading of the morning, and when I read it, I emphasized this particular phrase in First John three four: "Everyone who makes a practice of sinning." That means those who sin, and particularly in this context, sinning in a very, very nuanced way. We make a practice of sinning, and that is actually denying a cardinal doctrine of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, that He is fully God and fully man. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God in human flesh. And there were apparently in John's day some extant heresies, not as full-blown as they will become in later centuries, but they started here, and one of those was a sin of denying in some way that the Son of God had appeared as fully man. And these professing believers had apparently denied such a truth. It was a kind of heresy that was uh, so below the surface that you couldn't automatically pinpoint what kind of heresy it was, but it ultimately became evident. And apparently, according to chapter 2, this kind of heresy was such that there were those who would not only teach such a thing, but they would begin to try to influence others to believe that same kind of thing. A denial of the biblical view of the lordship of Jesus Christ as both fully God and fully man. Do you see them listed there in 1 John 2.19? They, that's who we're talking about, these who were denying the cardinal doctrines of the deity and humanity of Christ, particularly his humanity, they went out from us, John says. They went out from the true church, and it's so, he says, because they were not of us. And then he reasons thusly, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, he says, and here's a purpose clause, that it might become plain or evident that they are all not of us, that is those who went out. And he picks up, a similar theme here in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, not just their, their own sinning by way of lust or cravings or appetites, but also the practice of sinning of denying the true nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And here is the partial answer that I want to give you this morning about sin. Here it is stated in our Bibles, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a violation of the law of God. Either you're not living up to the perfect standard of the law of God, or you are transgressing the standard of the law of God. 1 John 3, 4 then gives us Scripture's most concise definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is seen in the Bible as a very dominant theme. I've said it before and it bears repeating. You cannot virtually turn one page of your Bible to another, and not see something, read something, or have something implied in the strongest terms about the doctrine of sin. It's all over the Bible. It's on every page of our Bibles. Something about sin. It's seen in the Bible as a dominant idea, a dominant concept. Man's rebellion, his rebellion against God and even God's gracious response to him. Scripture is replete, as I said, with references to sin. It's it's all over. Just listen to this little list, and it's really just a cursory list. Sin is described in the Bible as missing the mark or erring, godlessness. Sin in the Bible is described as the active sense of rebellion, not just a passive sense of it, but an active rebellion, is what sin is, a trespass, a transgression of God's revealed will. Sin is described also as going astray, unrighteousness. It's described as apostasy or falling away or stumbling headlong. Sin is described as an offense, an offense against a holy God. It's a breach of the law of God. It's associated with feelings of guilt and failure and faults and wrongdoings. But if you ask me, what is the essence of sin? We would, of course, use the word pride, and we should, but I would assume that the most characteristic feature of man's sin is that it is directed against God himself. I want you to look with me in the Old Testament. Go in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I can't speak of it in detail. This is one of the great... Penitential Psalms of David, penitential meaning that David was a penitent. He was a sinner. He was an acknowledged sinner. And of course, in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and of course, there are other Psalms that are penitential Psalms, including those of David. And here are the two most well known Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And he's going before the Lord and he's saying, Lord, I am a sinner. And when he does so, it's of course out of the context, perhaps. Because the superscription says, after he had gone into Bathsheba, and now he's being confronted with Nathan, that he comes to a level of understanding that he had not had before about the depths of sin, about the heinousness of sin, about the wrong of his sin, and he comes to that realization with full force. When when Nathan said to him, you are the man, then David was struck, maybe as perhaps never before. the reality of the sin of his heart. Look at Psalm 51. And as I said, we can't go through it in detail. I've preached through it in these evening messages on the Psalms. If you want, you can listen to that full exposition of Psalm 51. Here it says in verse 1, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity.'" and cleanse me from my sin. Notice the words that he uses here, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David doesn't hold back. He's using all kinds of words that speak of the depth of his sin. Uh, The Greek word for sin, one of them, of course, is the word hamartia, and it's out of which we develop the doctrine of sin called hamartiology the doctrine of sin. And here's our list of a few of those transgressions, iniquity, sin. And then he goes back to transgressions in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then this amazing statement in Psalm 51.4, against you, speaking of his relationship with God and speaking directly to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Justified in the sense that, God, I'm agreeing with you about my sin. What you're saying to me about my sin, I agree with. You have a just judgment. You have a blameless judgment that's who I am. And then in verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That means far more beloved than just the idea that somehow David presumed that his mom was somehow sinning as he was conceived. It goes Far more to the depths than that. What he means is, In sin did my mother conceive me because she is a sinner, and the one before her who conceived her is a sinner, and the parents before them were sinners, and it goes all the way back to Adam's sin itself. We we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. You see the difference? And this is this is one of those verses, Psalm 51, 4 and 5, that talks about sinning against God. He was so he was so clear in his mind that what his sin was with Bathsheba, and what he acknowledged before Nathan the prophet was not just the sin with Bathsheba, but that he was a sinner through and through. That's that's what he knows himself to be. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, and we'll look at an example from the new testament romans chapter 8 i can only give you a few verses here as we settle in to an understanding of sin as a preparation for the lord's supper this morning and here's romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 5 this is talking about a kind of sinning and this is a sinning with a constitutional bent to it this is this is how people sin because they are sinners. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. A person who is fleshly, carnal, worldly, through and through, habitually. This is the, this is the characteristic nature of their life. They are setting their minds on the things of the flesh of the flesh, Paul says. They're constitutionally wicked. And that's who we all are in Adam. We sinned with him and we are in him. And and because that's the case, and because this is what sin is and does, we have to be liberated from that. We have to be saved from that, delivered from that. We we have to have a, a kind of new life that's, that's taken uh, from God to us and replanted in us. And the old life has to be taken away. And that's what's told to us in the middle part of verse 5. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit, uh, according to the rule of the Spirit as over against the minds of the flesh, We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Do you see the contrast that's so clear there? Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And that's death in every sense. Physical death, spiritual death, and also ultimately eternal death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is death is life and peace. That's life and peace in the here and now, and that's spiritual life and peace uh, against the world's connotation and definition of life and peace, and it's eternal life and eternal peace. Verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says, it cannot, that, that heart, that mind, That will, those emotions, if if your non-physical part of you is set on the flesh, then the Bible says you're hostile to God. And someone might say, I'm not hostile to God. I'm ambivalent toward God. I'm in neutral toward Him. I I don't understand what you're talking about. You, You seem to be saying that everybody who's not a Christian is hostile to God. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. The mind that is set on the flesh. You say, well, yes, I I do some wicked things now and then. I have wicked thoughts. I do some things I shouldn't be doing. I make the wrong choices. Yes, I am a sinner as you have described me to be. And the Bible says that if you are a sinner and that you don't have salvation in Jesus Christ, it means that your very mind is set on the flesh. That's the bent of your life. That's the programmed nature of your condition, and it is, according to Paul, hostile to God. And it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, notice what it says, it cannot. You're you're constitutionally unable to submit yourself to God because you're hostile to God, and that is because your mind is set on the flesh and then verse 8, those who are in the flesh, those who are not just doing wrong things every now and then, but those whose lives are bent completely and totally toward the flesh, and it's because they're in the flesh, Paul says, cannot please God. Cannot please God. You remember James 4.4? You don't have to turn there, but it says this in James 4. Everyone who is flirting with involved with a part of the world is at enmity with God. And see, what it does is it takes people off the neutral position and it puts them in the negative position. Everybody who's living, who's not a Christian, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who hasn't had their sins forgiven, who isn't walking with Christ however failingly, But when you do, you confess it and you seek to be in a right relationship with Christ. Everybody who's in the opposite, everybody who's in the worldly camp, in the non-Christian camp, everybody who is living and breathing on the earth, who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the Bible says they cannot please God. This This is a tough message. This is a really tough message. You say, well, then why are you preaching it? Here's the answer, because I must. This is what the Bible teaches. Look, if we wanted to pack this place out and have every single seat occupied, I'd be telling you about daisies, carnations, beautiful flowers, one gorgeous sunset. I'd be telling you about all the good things of life. I'd be telling you about all the the perfect things of life and how, yes, we... We sin and we fail people, but we'll do better next time. Well, I have to tell us the truth because the Bible tells us the truth. Jeremiah 44, 4, God calls sin that abominable thing I hate. He's a perfect being, sinless, pure, holy, righteous, pristine clean, and we are not. And it's our utter rebellion against that kind of God, the King of the universe, that's the issue. So we have to confront ourselves because the Bible confronts us with the truth about ourselves. A.W. Pink says this, sin is a species of anarchy in the spiritual realm and may be likened unto the waving of the red flag in the face of God. You see, it's not just neutral. I mean, I just, I just wave the red flag in the very face of God and I say, I will not do what you are telling me to do. Take off. Scram. Scram. Get out of my life. See, that's what sin is. It's an infringement of God's known will. It's a revolt against His authority. It's it's not only tantamount to saying, I will be like God as the serpent tried to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden. It's more than that, much more than that. It's this, I want to un-God God so that I can be God. So that I can become God myself, which of course is pride, and it lies at the heart of all of our sinning thats that's what sin is. Maybe we could also ask ourselves the question, well what's sin's effect? I mean if that's, if that's what sin is, and that's just a very brief idea of it, well what's its effect? What, are you saying that it runs through me, through and through? Yes. And I could say it like this, sin's effect, if you just want to put it in a very, very succinct way, sin's effect is total. Total. And that's why theologians call it total depravity. Total depravity. We're not saying that a person who is a sinner is doing everything they could possibly do at every point and in every way with full force, the most sinful they can be at every moment of every day, of every month, every year and decade and life of that person. We're not saying that. Thank God that he helps retard by his Holy Spirit that kind of sinning to be occurring. Because if that kind of sinning was to be occurring in our world, there'd be none of us here because we would have all killed each other. That's what, that's what the idea is of sin, if left unchecked. But if you're going to ask me what sin is by way of its effect, I'll say it this way. You remember when we talked about faith, and we talked about faith is something that you must will from your willer, you know, your willer? I will to believe in Jesus Christ. And you do that, of course, because you're a person who wants to have as the affections of your heart loving Christ because you see Him as the only solution to your sin. And you do that because you are wanting to trust Him and rely upon Him and put your whole life into His hands. You see, that's, that's the idea that you are trusting Him and that you are willing to obey Him and that your affections are toward Him, chiefly, and nobody else. Well, that's the same with sin's effects. All of that stuff about my uh, desires, and all that stuff about my willing, and all that stuff about my trusting, well, all of that before I come to Christ is so out of whack. It's so wrong. That all of those faculties, all the things that we talk about in the non-physical part of man, the, the willing and the affections and the trust and reliance, the mind, the will and the emotions, well, guess what? In the flesh, outside of Christ, before a person becomes a true Christian, all of those things are also out of whack because of sin. Let me show you this. This will be under the category, sin destroys our understanding. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to go through these really, really quickly so that we can make sure that we have enough time for the Lord's Supper. This is, this is Genesis 6. Now remember, this is after Adam and Eve sinned, This is as we're reading the book of Genesis and we're finding out the extent or the nature of sin. And here's what we find in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And here's what it says The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a statement! I mean it's a damning statement it's an indicting statement I I grant you that but notice the extent of it do you see what I call 100% words here it says every intention that's a that's a 100% word and when god through moses pins these words that concept of every is not exaggerated it's not exaggerated i mean we exaggerate right I've told my kids for years, you know, when they've done something wrong or they need to do something better, and I say, haven't I told you that this is right or this is wrong? And, and, and they look at me like, this is the first time ever, Dad. <laughs> and then I usually joke with them and say, I've told you a million times. Never to exaggerate. <laughs> I've told you a million times not to do this. Well, this is not true of the Bible. I haven't done that a million times with my kids, thankfully so. But this is a 100% word from the very lips of the Lord himself through Moses and his pen. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only, there's another 100% word, only evil. Here's another one, continually. Every, only, continually. This is a problem. This This is a big problem. Because if the only and every and continual thoughts of my heart is evil, I'm in deep trouble. I'm in big time trouble. And do you know that Ephesians 4:17 says that the trouble's even worse? It's even worse than that. Because Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says. Paul says, this is from the New Testament, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That means unbelievers. And then it says, in the futility of their what? Their minds, their minds, their understanding. So whatever this sin is and whatever the extent of that sin is, it's included in the extent of that sin, the mind the futility of their minds. And and it's worse, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, that's another mind word, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And by the way, that's a culpable ignorance. It's not just, well, God, I'm standing here at the pearly gates and I really didn't know, I didn't know what your Bible said, and so you cannot judge me because I simply was ignorant. The Bible teaches us in many, many places and in many, many ways that the ignorance that people believe they can foist upon a holy God is I didn't know. And the Bible says that was a culpable ignorance. You chose not to know, but by the choosing you know what you don't know. You chose it. Due to their hardness of heart. You see? The ignorance is due to the hardness of their heart. So sin destroys our understanding. You say, I know a bunch of non-Christians. And you can watch them on television. You can hear them on radio. You can look them up on the internet. And they're not Christians. And they have minds that are superlative. They have active minds, fertile minds, intelligent minds, We're not talking about the capability of thinking, we're talking about the morality of such thinking. That's the difference. There are non-Christians who have incredible minds incredible capacities to think through logically certain issues and certain people and certain events and certain circumstances. We're not talking about the intellect as though it is something that is not affected by sin. What we are saying is that very intellect, even of the most erudite among us, is actually a kind of sin that is so insidious that it even makes those who have that kind of intellect think they're okay with God when they're not. It's a morality issue. It's ultimately a morality issue. Believing in Jesus Christ and trusting Jesus Christ is not just a thinking matter, it's a moral matter. Why? Because one day I'm going to meet him face to face and I'll have to give an answer. What is, what is that answer? Sin destroys our understanding. Secondly, sin also debilitates our emotions, our affections. It really does. Uh, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Sin not only destroys our understanding, but it debilitates our emotions, our affections. This is, this is hard, beloved. This is very, very hard. This is a hard word from the Word of God. But we must be true to its teaching in all its constituent parts. And here's the bad news. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 for although they knew God, that is everybody in the whole world, they knew Him, that is they, they knew about Him, God has given Himself a witness in creation and conscience, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, there's that, that destroying of our thinking, that is spiritually speaking, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's a lot of a reminder of what Paul said in Ephesians four seventeen and 18. Notice verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That means they were morally foolish, living such foolish lives, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we have turned to idolizing the things that God has made instead of the God who made them. I think it was Voltaire, famous philosopher, who said, God made man in his own image, and man turned around and returned the favor. Thank you, God. I'll make a God like me, not like you. And, and, and this is what Paul's saying here. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, uh, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. There's an article in front of that, for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's where I come up with the outline point that sin debilitates our affections. We've been so given up by God, it affects our passions, and they become dishonorable For women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And if it weren't worse than that, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. That's the destruction of the mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder. and, And notice all of these affection words. Notice all of these emotion words. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's, that's one hideous list. Though they know God's righteous decree, in other words, they know right from wrong, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. I think often of these shows on television where they're awarding awards to themselves. And you have people in the audience who are doing this. With all kind of sin and wickedness, and they're giving them a trophy for such wickedness. That's that's what it says here. Those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them boy, go, send some more. This is, this is a destruction and a debilitation of our very affections. I don't, I don't like giving sermons like this, but it's the truth. And if that weren't enough, sin not only destroys the understanding, it not only debilitates the affections and the emotions, but it also dominates the will. It dominates the will, Jesus said in john eight thirty four and those who sin, and in that particular category is how many of us, all of us, those who sin are a slave to sin, a slave i 'm chained to it i, I can 't get rid of it i can't see its end i 'm I'm like what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 about sin in general and the sin of my heart. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind I don't I don't have the will to obey I don't have the understanding to obey, and I don't have the affections or the emotions to do anything other than spend my time and effort on my own passions. One writer said, no area or aspect of our nature is left intact by sin. We can point to no single area or personality in order to claim any moral self justification John Stott said, our sins blot out God's face from us as effectively as the clouds do the sun. We have no communication with God. We are dead in trespasses and sins which we have committed. It's alienation from God. You say, like Nathan the prophet to David, I am that man. What do I do? How do I respond? You've taken the searchlight of God's Word and you've, you've shown it upon the sinfulness of my heart. You, you've you taken the piercing truth of Holy Scripture and you've plunged it into my heart and shown me that I deserve this. And I must tell you, so do I. So do I. This this hideous thing. I need to. I need to be saved. I need to be delivered. Well, here's the problem. The problem with that is, I can't do it myself. I'm I'm unable in my own course of life and action. You you've already told me, Lance, that that sin destroys the understanding and it it so debilitates the affections and the emotions of my heart and it destroys my will to do the right thing. If I had hands that could grasp upon the person of Jesus Christ, I would, but my arms are broken. I'm undone. In and of myself, I cannot and will not, and I choose not to to respond to a message like this. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. You know what I need? I need a new heart. I need a new heart. The heart that has been plunged into sin is a heart that must actually be spiritually replaced. The the evangelist D.L. Moody of long years past was confronted by someone on the street and said, I know you, Moody. I know you're that preacher there at the church in Chicago. And I want you to know, I need to give my heart to Christ. And he said, Why? He doesn't want that dirty old thing. He wants a new heart in you, a transplanted heart, so that you take out the heart of stone that can never be resuscitated, uh, you took a, a pin and, and you put it into a corpse, is there any stimuli? Is there any reaction? No. They're dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. What you need is a new heart. You need a spiritual heart transplant. You need a heart that revives. You need a heart that wills. You need a heart that responds. You need a heart that obeys. You need a heart that reaches out in joy and love, and that's not within us. That's wholly apart from us. You say, "Well, what's, what's the answer? Don't leave me hanging." The answer is, I need to be regenerated. I need a new heart. I need God to, to grant me a heart of flesh to take away the heart of stone. I need a complete makeover. I need Christ to come into my life and change me from the inside out. You say, well, tell me more about this regeneration. Tell me more about what it's like and what it does and how it affects me and how it makes a right relationship between me and God. You come back next Lord's Day morning. And I will, I will tell you what the Bible says about regeneration. But I will tell you now, Right as we come to the Lord's Supper, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what you need to do. If you're a true, bona fide, genuine believer in Christ, you ought to thank God for the forgiveness of sins. Right? You ought to thank God for what He's done in your life to make you a new creature in Christ. And if you're here and you're not a member of Bethany Bible Church, you've come as a guest or you're a believer who's come from afar and you're worshiping with us today, we have what we call open communion. If you're a believer, truly and genuinely partake of this Lord's Supper with us. You're a believer like we are, and we enjoy your participation with us in the Lord's table. But for those of you who are here and you don't know Christ, oh, you may know some things about Him. Uh, You may have read the Bible to a degree of one or the other. You have sought to make things clear in your mind but they're not clear. And perhaps maybe the clarity has come to you this morning. I need Christ. I I didn't catch 50% of what you said but here's the part I did catch. I need a savior. I need the Lord Jesus. Well, we're going to we're going to take part of the Lord's supper here with the bread and the cup and if you're not a believer, here's what we're doing and and if you're not a believer, don't partake in this part because what we're doing as believers is we're saying that the Lord is the forgiver of sins. And emblematically, symbolically as it were, when we take bread and cup to our hands, we are celebrating the death of Jesus Christ as our Savior. He died in our place, He stood in my stead. I deserve the death that he actually experienced. And because the living Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, I have new life in him. And I will also, once I die, will one day be resurrected from the dead so that I will live with him forever. If that's your heart, if that's what you want, that's why we existed as as a church. That's why we're here. We, We... give this message of the glorious return of Jesus Christ to come and to take his people to be with them forever and ever. And that's our hope and that's our joy. And if this is the case with you, here's what I'd love for you to do. As we bow in a moment and pray, I'd love for you to say from your chair, with your head bowed, I am that sinner and I do need a Savior. And Jesus is I need that new heart that the preacher was talking about. Would you grant it to me? And you know, if those words are genuine, the very reason you're saying those words from the heart of your heart, the deepest recesses of your soul, is because He's already working in you to give you such a heart. And if that's the case with you, let's bow together in prayer. Father, We want to acknowledge to you that while this message is hard, and it is serious, and it is sobering, it is also a message that is the only message that gives hope and help and life and peace. I pray for anyone who is here this morning who has never come into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they want to, even this day. They've they've acknowledged, I'm I'm a sinner. You've, You've pinpointed the very truth about what I now see of my own condition. And I want to cry out to this Lord Jesus that you've been preaching today. And I want him to save me. The Bible says that Those who believe on the Lord shall be saved. If you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, Lord of lords, King of kings, that He's the Lord risen from the dead and that He's coming again to take His people with Him, to be with Him forever where He is, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to go. And before I get there, I want to do good works. I want to serve this Savior of mine. I want, to, I want to do righteous deeds and not unrighteous ones. And I know that when I sin, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to ask you for the forgiveness of that sin. I'm going to, to want to be rid of it. I'm going to want to fight against it. I'm, I'm going to want to do what I never wanted to do before, and that is to ask you for the forgiveness and to bask in that forgiveness and to be one who is convicted of sin and wants to be as far from it as I could possibly be, oh, if that's your heart, I pray that you will, in fact, come to Jesus Christ even today. Today can be the day of your salvation, the deliverance of your sin by the cross of Jesus Christ. This is who we celebrate now as we partake of the bread and the cup.